This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together as we get started. Gracious God, that we come before you this morning and we see you high and lifted up. That you are one who reigns in the heavens. That you are a fortress and a strength for us when we are weary. And God, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to see you clearly through the text this morning. That we would see you and be changed. And that you would help us to grow more and more in the image of Christ day by day. It's in your name we pray and ask, expecting these things. Amen. Who are you? Well, that seems like an, an odd way to start a sermon. Who, who, who are you, though? If someone were to walk up this morning after the service and go, oh, who are you? Or maybe more importantly, someone would try to describe you to someone else. What would they say? What would be the characteristics of how they would describe you as a person? I mean, they'd probably start off with a name. Your name is, you know, Josh or Courtney or Barry or Sarah or, you know, many different ones that we could name in here. Yeah. Maybe they would talk about your relationships with other people. Uh, you're a husband, you're a wife of that person, you're the neighbor or the friend of so-and-so, you are the father, the mother, the daughter, the son of those people. M- maybe they would talk about your accomplishments, uh, he's, uh, or even just your characteristics. You're, you're tall, you're short, you're heavy set. you are you know, rich, you're poor, you are many different things that people might describe you, or, or maybe your position. He's a, he's a teacher, he's a lawyer, he's a construction worker, he's a software developer. And, and what if someone was trying to describe us as a body this morning? And they were saying, okay, who is Faith Baptist Church? What, what are they over there? There's a lot of preconceived notions about those things. Many people view a church as just a service or a building. There are those people that meet over there on Sunday mornings at 9-ish, 30, uh, for Sunday school and later on for the service, right? They're, they're a building that's at the corner of Three Mile and, and Sherry Road. Maybe they would say they're... Really, it's, it's kind of like the highlight of my social life for the week. Like, I go there just to see my friends, and I, I hang out with them. And maybe you would say, it's just my favorite charity. I really appreciate the work that they do in the community. They give to kids a Christmas box every year. They, they help out with food bank. They, they do these kinds of things. Maybe you would describe Faith Baptist Church by, it's the church that has this kind of preaching or that kind of music. It has these ministries for children. It has a radio station there. Maybe you would describe it as a museum or a mausoleum, even if it's that bad, right? Like, it's, it's full of dead things showing relics of a, of a pre-gone era that we look at, right? Why are we talking about who we are? Who you are is important because it leads you to what you are here for. If we're not sure who we are as a people of Faith Baptist Church, it's going to be really difficult for us to determine what we're supposed to do as a church together. You see this idea in the Bible that there's always an identity before there's an imperative. It's interesting that in the Bible, when there's persons or groups of people, their identity always comes before the commands that they are given to obey. In the Old Testament, God is constantly telling the people of Israel, you are my people and I am your God, therefore do these things. In the New Testament, over and over and over again, we see this pattern in the epistles where there's this section of doctrine that shows you who you are as a believer. 
Ephesians says, hey, you were dead, you were chosen, you were all these things. Therefore, chapters 4, 5, 6, do these things. The book of Romans gives you a really heavy section on justification by faith alone, that you are this person. Therefore, do these things. And so as as Peter is writing this text this morning to a group of Gentile believers who are under attack and they're trying to persevere in the midst of Roman persecution, He's going to ask them and even us this morning as we look in the text some things to do. But he's going to start with who they are as the foundation of those things. Notice first that Peter mentions our identity. In verse 9 he says, but you. Peter is going to compare and contrast here his listeners' current identity with who they were in their old life. And, and even rooted in the reality of who the world is now in verses 7 through 8. And, and here they're described as those in verse 7 and 8 as, as those who reject Christ. And, and those who stumble, why? Well, because they don't obey the word. That's what they were. But now there's something new and different. He's going to call his Gentile audience a, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a, a people for his own possession. And it's interesting because all of those terms were terms that Moses used for God to describe the people of Israel in the book of Exodus in chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. But Peter here in our text applies them to a predominantly Gentile church who are formerly not God's people. But now they are God's people because they've been entrusted in the Messiah. They have become to worship Israel's new king who reigns. And so he begins with this description of them. They are, first off, a chosen people. The Greek word here is not really left up to your imagination. What it means to be chosen is the word election. Like, it's what people are going to do this month. They're going to walk down. They're going to sign their ballot. They're going to put it in. And that's the person I chose for this purpose. And that's what God has done here. They belong to God because they've been chosen by him. This is, in fact, how Peter opens his book and his greeting in chapter one to the church. He says in Peter one, verse one, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, it's the same word, exiles of the dispersion to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's how Peter starts off by reminding these people of their identity. You are people who were chosen by God. We as people, we often try to tie our identity to our, our state or our country. I mean, just ask people from Texas how they feel about Texas. Winter Texans know what that's like. Okay? But it, it, like we tie it to those kind of things. We tie it to our own individual success. Like, how do I know that I have value? Well, look at the things that I've done. Look at the things that I possess. Look at the way my family is. Look at how my business has been successful. Look at my looks. Look at my culture. Look at these things. The problem with those things as your identity is that those things will always ultimately fail you. And and when you lose those things, you lose your identity. But our identity as Christians is not our association with those things. Our identity and our accomplishments is not where we're born, but on his gracious choosing of us. 
We have value because God decided in his mercy that we did have value. He chose us as a people for his own possession. And what gives me hope and assurity is not my abilities or my accomplishments or where I'm from, but because Christ has called me his own. Our Christian identity doesn't negate those associations, but it always supersedes them. Our worth isn't tied to our own works, but merely because God was gracious to us. So we are a chosen people. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. Okay? Well, the priesthood were those people who stood around and they offered sacrifices of repentance to God for the people. You went to the temple and outside they were always, always offering these sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. The altars year after year were just filled with these things. And once a year there would be this high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and he would plead for God's forgiveness for the people. And not only were they leading the people in the repentance for their sins, but they were leading people in the adoration of the character of God. Our God is not like all these other gods. Our God is great. Our God is the Lord of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they just are proclaiming over and over and over again the greatness of the character of God. And and the idea here is that royally generally describes someone who inhabits a royal residence or a palace. And I think what Peter's getting to here is that we now are not like those other priests. They could only maybe one of them enter into the presence of God once a year. And even then with their back turned for fear that they would fall over dead. And you and I, we are now called into the presence of God on a daily basis. And we enter with repentance and worship moment by moment. And Christ communes with us. You're never in a neutral zone for your priesthood. You are either praising God and giving your spiritual worship, or you're not. And that's, that's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, right? That whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, the most base things in life that you could possibly hope to accomplish, do those things for the glory of God. Our new identity is not just as a chosen people, but it's also as priests who rule with the king and his kingdom and are constantly proclaiming the excellencies and the glory of God, but also have access for the repentance of our sins so that we can be cleansed and restored to God. But thirdly, we're also a holy nation. A nation, huh? Let me ask you a question. When you hear that, what holds more importance to you? Your identification as a citizen of the United States or your identification as a citizen of heaven. You see, by nature, the church is political. Preaching is a political statement where you declare the authority of a king. Baptism is politically because you're swearing an oath of allegiance to a king and his kingdom. The lordship of Christ is political because you're declaring there is someone who is greater than other authorities in power. Don't get me wrong. I, like, I love the United States. I love America. I have a grandfather who fought on Normandy. I have a grandfather who fought in the Valley of the Bulge, as well as on the, uh, the Mount Sarabacha in Iwo Jima. 
I have a cousin who died in Vietnam. I teach U.S. history for a living. Okay, don't, don't under, misunderstand me. I'm very thankful for the freedoms that God has given us. And I, I do think that we live in the greatest country in the world. But I worry sometimes that we're in such a hurry to make our church more like our nation that instead we don't try to make our nation more like Christ. This phrase was common in the Old Testament to call and show that these were God's covenanted special people. They were holy. They were set apart from everybody else. It's something that is unique and special. It's pure. It's for a purpose. And this is why Paul addresses the Gentile church and he calls them, you're aliens, you're sojourners, you're exiles, you're something totally strange to this place where you now call home. Because we search a better country with a better leader than anything we could hope to have here. We are now a new nation that has been called out to declare our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And you and I have more in common with someone from Russia or China or Iran or Mexico who believes in the name of Christ than someone from Texas who happens to follow the same political party that we do. Lastly, he says, you are a prized possession. You are a people for his own possession. A people indicates not an individual, but a group thing. We are the people for his own possession. The phrase that's used here sometimes in ancient times would refer to something that's unique in the sense that the king owns everything in the kingdom. But there are certain things that are particularly the king's. Like, it's his private island or beach house that he has. It's that one thing in his treasure room that's like, he just opens it up and he admires it and it's for his own possession. Like, everything he has is his. But this is something that brings him extra pleasure and excitement. And it's interesting that that's how he describes you and I. Do you think of God looking at you as something that's prized and precious to him? Or do you look at God as stuck in an economic transaction? Like, I prayed that prayer thing and, and I, I tried to give my life over. And because Jesus said he would forgive me, now he's stuck with it. Like, he didn't know what he was getting himself into when he chose me. Now, like, I just worry that he's never going to, like, love me. He's just going to be like, okay, come on back. Come on back. I, I agreed. I signed the contract. That's not how God looks at you. God looks at you like he looks at his son. He looks at you through the lens of the work of Christ on your behalf. And it's interesting because that idea of a prized possession in Greek is not just something that's purchased, but something that's preserved. We are both owned by him for his pleasure, but we're also secured and preserved and kept by him. We are a chosen Race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a peculiar people for his own possessions. Why? Why is Peter describing us this way? Well, notice not just the identity that we have, but notice the purpose that's attached to that identity. Our purpose is the proclamation. Verse 9, part B says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. Peter, Peter, Peter most assuredly has here the idea of Isaiah in chapter 43, verse 21, where Isaiah declares that God formed Israel for himself so that they could recount my praises to the nations. But what does Peter mean when he says You're supposed to proclaim these things. 
Okay, well, first off, proclamation means worship. Right? The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Catechism, one of those old groups of things that sometimes we read in the morning to help us to drive our theology in the right directions. It, it starts in our hearts. It's a proclamation to myself that I exist for the glory and worship of God. That is my most fulfilling thing that I can do. Augustine, the church father, said that if you're searching for something and you can't find something to fill the void that's in your heart, it's because it was a God-sized hole that nothing else was made to fill. And when I am seeing who I am, it leads me to what I'm to do. I'm made to worship the king. And, And this is something that we do personally in our own lives at our homes. We read his word, we pray, we sing his praises, we worship for him for his creation. But it's also something that you and I do corporately. When Faith Baptist Church comes together, who we are informs the fact that we are people who worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We proclaim the gospel to everyone at all times by the things we do when we're together in this room. We were made to worship. But proclamation also has to have a detail of witness. Our proclamation call goes beyond the confines of these walls where we're sitting right now. Our proclamation of the glory of God is not sufficient to stay in my home in solitude. It's too big for that. God has called all of us to proclaim his glory to the nation. I am a proclaimer of the King of Kings. Okay, well, what am I supposed to be proclaiming? All right, well, look at the message of our proclamation. That you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The first thing that you and I should be doing is proclaiming the excellencies of God. Who can do that? Who can count the depths of the excellencies of God? I I, I love this. Like H.E.B. Charles says that we are engaged daily on kingdom propaganda. Here's the reality. When we come together to worship and when we see each other outside of this room, we are not to worship and soundboard other things and repeat them that they already hear. Like we're not here to be another soundboard for ESPN. As exciting as college football was yesterday, like that's not what you and I were created to be a soundboard for. The world outside, you and I, we do not need to be Fox News or CNN or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever else it may be that you feel like you need to proclaim. I'm not a weatherman. What I am is the child of the king who's been transformed by his grace. And that king needs to be proclaimed to our neighbors and our friends. What we need is a fresh and daily reminder of the character of God. When was the last time that you meditated and you proclaimed to your family or to your friends or your co-workers or your neighbors the excellencies of God? What people in the Rio Grande Valley need to hear is that God created and sustains all things. They need to know that he is a God full of long-suffering and loving-kindness. They need to know that he's omnipotent and fully powerful, that he has justice and wrath against their sin. 
That His fierce anger rests on those who have broken His creation and the role that all of our sins play in that. They need to know of His greatness and His grace that's shown on the work of the cross. That's what we do because that's who we are. We are a group of people who are proclaiming the excellencies of God. And those excellencies are most clearly seen when we look when we're out of darkness into light. This idea of out of darkness is a description of our physical condition apart from Christ. It's what John says in John chapter 3. When you have Nicodemus come and talk to him, he proclaims the idea that God loves the world. He's died for them. But there's this problem. Man is not willing to come out of his darkness. He says, this is the judgment. Chapter 3, verse 19. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil and everyone who is evil hates the light. And he doesn't want to come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Spoiler alert. Cockroaches do not like lights turned on and shine bright on them. When you shine a light on a dark thing, it illuminates and shows you what's really there, not what you just want to be there. And the fact is that you and I, we were children of darkness. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that ruled in the children of disobedience. And we had our lifestyle after the flesh and we were children of wrath just like everyone else. But maybe the most incredible phrase in the Bible, but God who was rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. He saved us. He raised us up together. He seated and in the heavenly places that in the ages to come, we could show the incredible greatness of his riches. That's what we were created to do. We were people who were in darkness, and now we are people who are in the light. But what's so marvelous about this light? Well, first off, you could say it's because it's divine light. It radiates from the Father with whom there is truth for everything. It's saving light. It's light that when it shows, it rescues and and prepares us. It's purifying light. The psalmist says, Where all shall man cleanse his ways? By taking heed therein according to thy word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And it's a light unto my path. It's the thing that illuminates for me what is true and what is not. It's a guiding light. It's an eternal light. It's not one that you have to change the light bulb because it's going to go bad and not be as bright anymore. The excellencies of Christ shine for eternity for us to see. That's why it's marvelous. The central focus for us that Peter wants us to see is found in the actual gospel itself. Look, secondly, that he says in verse 10, we are God's people. We are this thing. Solely because of God's mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is an actual quote from the prophet Hosea. Do you remember that guy? The story of Hosea? He's this prophet in the Old Testament. And in in chapter 1, God makes this prophet do something that for us seems like, this is crazy. 
I don't know why you would do that, but here's what God says. Hey, what I want you to do, Hosea, is I want you to go find a wife, but I want you to make sure that she's a prostitute. What? That's in the Bible? Yeah, God does that. Why? Because he wanted to use the prophet as a living illustration to the people of Israel what it was like when he was married to them and they've been unfaithful to him. And so he goes and he takes this wife and they have a kid and God tells Hosea to give her a real strange name. In verse 6, says that she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Loruhemai, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel and I would that I would ever forgive them. I will never forgive those people. I want you to name your kid No Mercy. I mean, we're not talking about Cobra Kai. We're talking about like no mercy to the fullest. I will never show mercy to you again because you have wandered away. I want you to think as a spouse, the hurt that it causes when you find out that there's unfaithfulness in that relationship. Because that pain is the pain that God himself felt as we wander away from him. And he keeps going He says in verse 9 that they have another kid, and I want you to know him, lo am I, for you are not my people and I am not your God. God says at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 that it's because of Israel's sin that they're in this new status. I made a covenant with you and you didn't keep your end. So now you're not my people. I'm not your God. You have no mercy and compassion from me. I am the God who is long-suffering and full of mercy and those characteristics that Moses told you of. But now we're done. But God doesn't leave it that way. God says that he is going to bring about his wrath on them and they will no longer receive his mercy. But God is eventually going to show his amazing characteristics Because he's going to show mercy to people who should never receive mercy. Look at verse 14. God with Israel like us, when we were sinners, initiates this relationship with them. He says in chapter 2, verse 14 of Hosea, In the future, I will allure her. And at that time, I will make a covenant. And, And I will commit myself to you forever. I will commit myself to you in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in tender mercy. I will commit myself to you in faithfulness. And then you will acknowledge the Lord. And it it will come about in that day that I will respond. I'm going to respond to your unfaithfulness and your treachery in a way that is totally antithetical to what you think should happen. Then, verse 23, I will plant her as my own in the land, and I will have pity or compassion on the person who was called no pity. And I will say to not my people, though am I, you are my people, and you will say, you are my God. It's God's mercy that merits us to proclaim his excellencies. Because the most gratifying thing that we could do, the most unbelievable thing we could do, is to proclaim an unbelievable story about good news. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel says that you and I were sinners who broke God's law. We marred his creation. And because of that, the just wrath of God rests on us. A good judge cannot let a person who actually broke the law go free. We would never say that person is a good judge. 
Oh, did you hear about the judge that let that person convicted of murder just walk because, eh, you seem like a nice guy. I think you can do okay better. What a horrible judge. But God is a just judge. So his wrath rests on mankind for that. And there's nothing that you and I can do to make it up. I can't fix it. It's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but it's only by his mercy that I receive that. And so Christ became the perfect man and lived the perfect life to take our place on the cross. He died the death I couldn't die. He was raised three days later and he has risen and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he is making intercession for me. And that is why one day everyone will declare that characteristic to God. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and blessing and wisdom and might both now and forevermore. And we will fall down and worship because the excellencies of God are most clearly seen in His mercy of choosing us as a people. Sweet. But that, that's good for us to meditate on. But you and I still have a mission to accomplish through that. I know this is not a traditional Baptist sermon where there's three points and now a hymn for you, but we do have a fourth point. Okay? See, lastly, in verse 11 12, the mission that we are now put on. Peter has told them, this is who you are. This is why you were made that way. You're made to proclaim. Well, how am I going to proclaim that? Well, our mission goes back to our identity. Beloved, this warmth of like, hey guys, blessed one, love people that I love, I want you to hear me. This is what you need to do. I urge you back to your identity as sojourners and exiles to have this inward focus. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The term fleshly lust is not limited to sexual immorality, but rather it encompasses the evil of our human sinful nature. You and I are daily in a war, not against the weird people outside these doors, but the one that's sitting there in the seat right now that you are in a never-ending conversation with yourself. And you are informing yourself what is the truth about God's word. And you're going to say, yeah, God, I want to honor you and I'm going to do these things or I'm not because I want to rule myself. John Calvin says our hearts are like idol factories. They're always making something new for us to worship. And we are warring against those fleshly desires on a daily basis. Galatians, this is what Paul proclaims in chapter 5, that the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these, their immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And when you look at Corinthians, he gives you a similar list, but he ends it a different way. Such were some of you were not for the grace of God. The most important thing I can take away from today is the fact that I am warring with my flesh, but I already have the victory through Christ. Christ is one. This is not a like, I hope we can hold out in this building and hope the world doesn't come in and destroy us. I hope that I don't have to sin anymore. We've already won. You and I are not holding the fort. We're proclaiming the victory to those who are outside of it. His kingdom is coming. He is here and he will return again to reign. It also leads us to an outward focus. Don't just war in your own life, but keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? Because people are watching. 
Why do I need to live that Christian life? Why am I that weird person? Okay, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be weird. It's not saying that you need to dress weird or suddenly like go back in a time capsule to way back when people were actually holy. Because, spoiler alert, people have never been fully holy. Right? People are always struggling with sin in every age. There's a reason that there's not a perfect church. There's epistles written to the first century church who are right after Christ, and they had messed up things going on in their life too. But instead, we are to try to walk day by day with the people who are around us that honors God. Because people are looking first off to attack Christians. That's why Paul says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And glorify your God on the day of visitation. So, first off, it's because people are watching. People are looking at you. Spoiler alert, too. Your kids look at you. It's one of the the things about having a two-year-old that my wife and I have suddenly become very aware of. It's like my wife screams across, hey, Josh, hey, Josh. And now my son, instead of saying, dada, which he always says, he's like, hey, Josh. Like, why? How did he learn that? I never taught him that. Well, he learned it because he was observing someone else. And your neighbors, they know whether or not your car is in the driveway on Sunday morning. They know that if they talk to you, what they're going to get out of you. People around you know what you claim to be. They know that you say, I'm a royal priest, I'm a holy nation, I'm chosen for God's own position, I'm one who's called out of darkness into light. Really? And yet, your deeds are obvious to everyone that is around you. But I would say an even greater motivation that you have. Why do I inwardly focus and outwardly focus? Why am I living on mission? Because of the purpose of who I am. The question comes back to you that we started today fully with. Who are you? I am someone who was made to glorify God. And guess what? My glorification of God spills over to other people. All of ministry is overflow. As I store up the word of God in me richly, it overflows into hymns and singings. It overflows into thanksgiving. It moves its way out in the way that I handle myself. My glorification glorification of God, Peter says, is what causes other people to glorify God too. And guess what? If that's not enough for you, Christ is coming again. We're going to see in Titus very soon that we are looking for that blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who made us for his own possession. That, that's what we're looking at. That's what Peter is calling us to do. Who are you? Live like who you are. Be who you are. Be the church of Jesus Christ. Those who have been called out by his grace and sent out for his glory. So that we would proclaim the excellencies of God. God, help us to do that. It's him that we trust. Let's pray. Gracious God, it's easy for us to say those things. It's really hard for us to live those out. God, I pray that you would help us to look to our neighbors, our family, as a starting point for being burdened for those who are around us without that grace. I pray you help us to meditate on what is true. That in the midst of my despair, in the midst of my fight with sin, God, you have already won the victory for me. There's no temptation that's taken us, but what's common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. And his mercies are new every day. So I've got to pray that you would help us to live that way this week. It's in your name we pray and we ask. Amen.